This is a message for those that work in manufacturing across the UK and Ireland. Do your engineering maintenance stores keep you awake at night? Are your engineers spending excessive time sourcing and finding the spare parts they need? Eric's on-site teams take responsibility for your indirect supply chain, including both your MRO procurement and inventory control. And, as the name suggests, we do this while being based on your site. For more information, visit www.erics.co.uk forward slash em. This episode of Engineering Matters is supported by The Optimistic Outlook. The Optimistic Outlook is a great listen for fans of Engineering Matters. It is a podcast for anyone intrigued by innovation across sectors, whether you're in healthcare, infrastructure, energy or beyond. The show is hosted by Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens USA, and offers invaluable insights relevant and impactful for all industries. I think what you're really going to like is that Barbara Hampton is not just a CEO, she's a thought leader in the corporate world. In the podcast, you often learn from her journey to the top of Siemens USA, getting invaluable lessons on leadership, decision-making, and navigating the complexities of the modern workplace. Barbara brings a wealth of knowledge, not just about manufacturing, but about its ripple effects across all sectors. Her perspective illuminates how manufacturing innovations are setting the pace for changes in healthcare, infrastructure development, energy sustainability, and more. Regardless of your industry, the optimistic outlook is a source of motivation and forward-thinking ideas. Barbara's expertise in connecting dots between manufacturing and other sectors reveals actionable strategies for innovation and leadership in any field. We invite you to explore the optimistic outlook and join a broad audience that values transformative ideas, including us. Search for the optimistic outlook wherever you get your podcasts. Close your eyes for a moment. Imagine a world where housing is in short supply. One where children grow up in slums and play in ruins. Without the schools and hospitals their community needs. The world we're describing is the Europe and Britain of the 1950s and 60s. It is one where cities have been decimated by aerial bombardment where streets are crumbled ruins. Where people have demanded the public services they have long been denied. It's a world where construction and engineering sectors must find new ways to build. In the 1950s, the construction industry came up with a solution to this desperate need. Building on the clever ideas from the 1920s, they found a way to make strong and well-insulated structures using materials that could be built to spec in a factory and installed safely and efficiently on site. As a society, we demanded a fair share of our nation's resources and the building industry delivered. It was the conception of what are now called modern methods of construction. An approach to building that learns from the factory and takes those lessons to the job site. And the material that formed the roof of that approach was rack. Reinforced, autoclaved, aerated concrete. One of the first wonder materials of human-centred construction. And one that is today in the headlines for all the wrong reasons.
Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. Today, we're looking at the history of RAC. We'll learn how it helped build the world we live in and the lessons it can teach us about how we plan, inspect and maintain public buildings. Our guide will be Trevor Rushton. I'm chairman of Watts Group. I'm a chartered building surveyor. Been with the firm for the last 40 years or so, so man and boy. We are a combination of surveyors, quantity surveyors, project managers. We've been involved, particularly in commercial property, so certainly as long as uh, I've been with the firm the last 40 years. And prior to that, we did quite a lot of uh, public sector work with for uh, housing associations and uh, uh, organisations. Trevor is an expert in failure. Over decades, he has studied why buildings have failed, what signs we can see of impending failure, and how we can avoid these failures in the future. My particular interest is in building failures, building performance issues, which is probably since about 1990, an area that I've specialised in. 17 years ago, I authored for the RICS a textbook on deleterious and hazardous building materials, which is where I first started to talk about RAC, but I was aware of it prior to that. The issue associated with RAC are not new. The first signs that the building owners may need to pay attention to it came fairly early in Trevor's career. It came on my radar in the early 90s, and I remember a particular shopping centre survey that I was working on where we'd found it. And I was aware from early reports then that there were potential issues of deflection and cracking. 17 years ago, I wrote about it fairly briefly, when I was trying to work out at that time whether the material was classed as deleterious or not. There were loads of materials that were being prohibited. Fast forward to 2018, we suddenly had the, uh, the failures of the schools in Kent. And again, my interest was, was awakened there. It had been somewhat dormant over that period because it, it wasn't a material that one came across that often in commercial building surveying. So what is RAC? And why was it so popular in the post-war public building sector? RAC itself was was a useful material. I mean, it, it's about the third of the density of normal concrete, so it's a lot lighter, uh, which means you don't need so much in terms of foundation or structure to, to, to hold it in place, lighter weight structure, quicker to build. It's also a product that can be, and, and this is probably a disadvantage in retrospect, but it can be cut and, and modified quite easily during construction. So it uh, held a number of advantages there, relatively cheap, by comparison with other forms of construction, quite quick to install because it didn't need elaborate finishings or didn't necessarily need to be concealed within within the building. So a number of advantages from that point of view. We'll look again in a moment at how racks should be handled during construction and what goes wrong when it isn't handled properly. But it's important to understand what it's made out of and how this can cause issues. 
The bulk of a rack plank consists of AAC, or autoclaved aerated concrete. That's the stuff you see used in lightweight insulating blocks for walls, as well as beam and block floors, and more recently with thin bed mortar allowing rapid construction, and fewer manual handling risks for people on site. Autoclaved aerated concrete is, if you like, the, the basic material. And that, that was produced or patented, I think, in uh, in Sweden in, in the 20s. So it's been around for quite some period of time. But rack planks are made from autoclaved aerated concrete, as are ordinary building blocks. They were and, and still are used. So uh, it's, a, it's a stable, very inert um, product. It just happens that the autoclaved aerated concrete used in reinforced planks that have not necessarily performed terribly well in this country. Like all forms of concrete, AAC offers good compressive strength, but it lacks tensile strength. Unsupported, it can crack under load. It can be made more useful for long spans by adding steel reinforcements. To provide strength, it was necessary to introduce reinforcement within the and within the planks themselves, you wouldn't have that in just aerated concrete blocks. So it's steel rods put uh, within within the material. And one of the issues is because the concrete is very, it's not it's not particularly strong material. It was necessarily to lock the reinforcement in place. Without some locking mechanism, the normal deflection under load could cause the reinforcement to tear out or move relative to the uh, to the AAC. And so what was common was to provide some uh, transverse bars welded to the longitudinal bars. And those transverse bars would, would help lock the material in place and resist bending. With that reinforcement inside the plank, it could be used to efficiently and safely cover large spaces like those in hospitals and schools. Typically, planks would be anything up to about six, just a fraction over six metres long, and usually about 600 millimetres wide. Uh, there were variations on that, but that, that was the general rule. But this strength can only be maintained if the plank was installed as manufactured. Remember when Trevor said that the material could be easily cut? It would be possible to, to cut the panel down, for example, uh, to fit a particular location or maybe a, an opening needed through the roof or uh, you know any one of a number of reasons. And that could mean that the, the transverse reinforcement is cut off at the end of the panel. A lot of the problems that we've found, it's not so much design as construction. The design was regulated under the, uh, the, the codes of practice at the time, reinforced concrete so um, its design was was carried out in accordance with those design codes admittedly they were fairly brief as far as rack was concerned but nonetheless they were there that would be okay however problems during construction could lead to inadequate bearings we should be ideally looking at something greater than 75 millimetres, but we've come across examples where it's much, much less than that. And even if planks were installed without modification, damage could still occur over time. 
unlike other manufactured building materials, that damage might not always be apparent. The challenge is, because the concrete is fairly uh, uh, low density, um, that it, it, it doesn't lock the steel in place in the way that it would do in conventional concrete. So you couldn't, you know, it can move. The other problem is that uh, if the steel corrodes, when steel corrodes, you get expansion normally, and that causes ordinary concrete to spall and to, to flake off. So you, you know something is going wrong because generally speaking, you see visible evidence of it. The visible damage to standard reinforced concrete is called spalling. Spalling occurs when corroded rebar within a piece of concrete expands. That causes the concrete to crack. Pieces of concrete might even drop off, exposing the rebar below. It's easy for a surveyor or even just a user of the building to spot. Rack, because it, again it's quite a soft material, it's possible for the expansion to take place without necessarily getting that spalling. Not in every case, but it, it can happen that way. In 2018, a rack panel roof failed like this in a staff room at Singlewell Primary School in Kent. The panel caused damage to the facilities and equipment below, but no injuries. Poorly installed rack planks, or those used in buildings that have not been properly maintained, can fail without warning. They were used to provide much needed community services. That means that it's often those who are most vulnerable, children, hospital patients, who are most likely to be harmed in the event of a plank failure. The sorts of buildings where you would find it would, would generally be flat roofed, not exclusively, <laughs> but generally flat roofed uh, classroom type buildings or single storey, perhaps two storey buildings with, and that could be retail as well, or libraries, civic buildings, ambulance stations, those sorts of things. So what was going wrong? Had the UK taken risks that other countries had not? I think um, it's not a particularly UK problem because this product is still made and it's used, it's in widespread use throughout Europe. I think um, in uh, Asia, Australia, in the States as well. So it's not, it's not an uncommon product. What seems to be the case here um, is that in many of these buildings have not been maintained very well and that has uh, had its taken its toll on on the performance of the materials. Um, if it if it was properly designed and looked after throughout it throughout its life, there isn't really any reason why it shouldn't continue to perform. But uh, sadly, lots of schools have not been maintained properly. They've been subject to uh, you know water ingress, overloading sometimes when they've been re-roofed. Uh, any one number of different you know maintenance. Um, operations over the years may have damaged it. I think like any building material, it needs looking after. If you have a flat roof, you don't allow it to leak, regardless of whether it's rack or timber or steel or what have you. You don't, you don't want it to leak. So it makes sense that you maintain the building properly. Rack and other manufactured building materials were being used because they were an efficient and cost-effective way to allow for a boom in the construction of public buildings. They were the right tool for the job. If we were building buildings to have a 30-year life or a 60-year economic life, for example, 
then why would you necessarily specify something that was going to last 100 years? By the early 90s, the material was beginning to be classed as a, sh a relatively short life material. But with a, with a, uh, a designed economic life, as they say, 30 years or 50 years, then the material would be suitable. We're not talking about something that's going to decay and, uh, and fail within 25, generally. It shouldn't be anyway. Those same councils and health authorities that need to balance their budgets when these structures were being built later had to again consider costs carefully as they planned maintenance budgets. Unfortunately, a lot of the buildings that are affected by it are those where money is tight and uh, it's a question of juggling your, your resources and your costs. After the first failures and the alert that Kent County Council put out in 2018, the industry, building owners and users started to pay much more attention to RAC. As parents prepare to send their children to school at the start of the new school year this year, the UK government warned that more than 100 buildings may not be safe to use without other safety measures being taken. The challenge now was to identify which buildings the panels had been used in. And there was no simple way to do this. The trouble is that, that now you would be hard pushed to find any records of you know, what is required in terms of maintenance. You're lucky if you can find drawings from construction, very lucky. Today, one would be a bit more specific about what to do. Without good records, building owners and users needed to find other ways to identify buildings where rack may have been used and those where there may be a particular risk. So uh, in terms of triaging, it's looking at the age of the building and the nature of construction. If you might not know whether rack panels have been used, but is it flat roofed, for example? It, what sort of age was it constructed? Uh, if it was pre-war, then it's probably unlikely. Early 50s, probably unlikely. 50s through till early 90s, more likely. So you know, there, there are some, some initial measures that you can take to try and prioritise. I hesitate a little bit to say flat roofs because the product was also used for floors in some buildings. Uh, and I've also seen it in um, pitched north light roofs. So 30 degree pitch, that sort of thing. Um, so it's not it's not exclusively flat roofs, but that, that would be a good starting point. Once the likely presence of rack plans has been established, it's time to take a closer look, identifying additional risk factors. The other thing would be visual evidence of deflection, such as ponding of the roofs. If there was regular evidence of ponding on, on the roof, that, that could be a, a warning sign that there was deflection in the structure. Not uncommon in any flat roof, but um, it's, it's a, uh, you know, a, warning, a warning sign. If those warning signs are there, or if there are other reasons for concern, more in-depth investigation should be carried out. There might be obvious signs of it, excessive deflection, for example, or there may be uh, a, a lack of bearing width, which you, you'd have to explore. I mean, you, you can't necessarily see that just by looking at it. You need to possibly do a little bit of opening up to, to verify it. So the procedure now is largely uh, that recommended by the iStruct-E, who have produced uh, a couple of good guides to rack one uh, last year one the year before and that is to firstly identify its presence 
And having done that, then consider a number of other issues, such as the length of bearing, the position and condition of the steel, the amount of deflection, whether there's any physical damage, whether the panels have or are, well, have been subjected to uh, water ingress through leaks and so on. You consider all of those points, and then iStruct E has a, a sort of risk assessment matrix to determine whether or not the condition is likely to be critical uh, or whether it's something that you can leave in place and simply monitor. So you, in, in order to answer that question, one needs to do some ex careful exploratory work to look at the positioning and condition of the steel, the depth of bearing, and whether or not there's significant deflection. Building owners can now triage buildings where they may be a risk. Surveyors and even non-specialists can spot where additional factors might have weakened the material. And they can refer to guides from organisations like iStruct-E, the Institution of Structural Engineers, that explain in more detail what checks should be made. But what can industry learn from the recent experiences with RAC? Is it the sort of deleterious material, like asbestos or certain types of concrete, that should not be used at all and which require extensive remediation when found? Sometimes those lists were rather unfair on materials because, uh, you know, if you use a lot of materials in the right way, there's no reason why they shouldn't perform properly. At the time, I do not think that rack fell into that category of a deleterious material. It might have been better to have called it problematic material. Should we shy away from innovation in building materials? Was it wrong to have used it in the first place? There was certainly a, a programme of reconstruction following the war and the, uh, the, the white heat of the technological revolution was, uh, particularly from the, the late 50s through to the 60s, was a sort of a major period of uh, building and demand for building. And innovative construction was one way of satisfying that demand, as indeed it is now. Um, if we relied purely on traditional construction, we would not meet targets, for, for example, for new housing. Today, we have some clear advantages over those builders of the 60s and 70s. Now, engineers can use advanced testing systems to simulate stresses on a material over time. And the use of BIM, or Building Information Management Systems, make it easier to trace records of which materials have been used. Could the uh, negative effects have been predicted at the outset. One would like to say yes, but it doesn't always apply, it doesn't always follow. Nowadays, we have rather more rigorous procedures, uh, things like Agrimont certificates, which I know aren't necessarily the answer to everything and can be sometimes misleading if you're not careful. And I'm thinking there, some of the problems we have with cladding and insulation. Um, but at least they have a, a tested testing system that is applied to them to try and assess uh, their future performance. And that may not have existed or would not have existed at the time that we were specifying RAC. In the UK, builders, architects and engineers can make use of a scheme from the NHBC, the National House Building Council, called NHBC Accepts, which is a comprehensive review service for innovative building systems. The NHBC set up 
uh, a system that looked at new and innovative building construction methods. That was designed to try and avoid serious problems developing with new and innovative building materials. I think the, the, the industry would be stifled if, if one said no innovation. We wouldn't move on. We would not meet the demand for buildings um, if we stuck entirely to traditional construction. We also have better knowledge of how materials perform and stricter design codes. Uh, I mean, even for RAC, there's um, uh, a, a far better European standard now than there was at the time that we were regularly specifying them. And the most important lesson of the RAC crisis is one that needs to be learned not by the building industry, but by politicians. It's about not leaving any job half done. You need to maintain your buildings, and uh, that means keeping them dry. And if they're being altered, to alter them in the in a way that's not going to damage the performance of the of the components. The, the mere existence of rack does not condemn a building to demolition or or even major work. It, it, it may it may require major work certainly, but it, the mere existence doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a problem. Over the last couple of weeks, the UK's political parties have held what are likely to be their last conferences before a general election in 2024. They've all proposed new ways to meet demand for new homes and for better public services. This should be applauded. But voters and donors should also consider, are our leaders prepared to adequately fund councils and services so they can perform the ongoing maintenance that is needed to keep buildings safe? Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the man who makes sure that we have the funding we need to keep Engineering Matters strong and stable is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.